Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, the ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hi, welcome back to Keto Naturopath. This is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. As I had mentioned in our last podcast, we're going to be pursuing the issue of sweeteners for a couple of podcasts. And I sort of gave an overview for my last podcast. And, you know, it is such a vast topic in looking for one credible sources of information and looking for the history, which is uh, usually the thing that reveals the negative side effects of various things. And then coupled with my own clinical experience back uh, through 16 years, you know, what sweeteners, and all the sweeteners were not out then, but most of them were the synthetic ones. I tended to favor xylitol, and I saw a lot of reactions with aspartame, and sucrose, uh, sucralose was just starting to come out in the early 2000s, and people were having problems with that. So though I didn't know the biochemistry behind it, and I'm, I know a little better only because I've done some reading, but that's a little bit irrelevant. I've seen such an automatic response to sucralose and aspartame that I could easily identify from the diet diaries and the foods these people were eating. Sometimes these sweeteners are not that easy to identify because they're just not listed in the labels and they're mixed in with other things. So it's, I hate to use the word sneaky, but it's certainly not straightforward. So it's merely by clinical documentation that a lot of patients had these particular, had certain problems with these particular sweeteners. That's all that I came from, and that's pretty much as far as most doctors go. So now in looking back and looking at the industry in particular, you see it's it's basically another arm of the pharmaceutical industries that are making other chemical structures that they can sell, and they want to keep it under patent for X period of time, and then make another one that is just slightly different. So we'll get into some of that, but what I've decided to do is, um, I'm getting a little more sophisticated in my recording, I'm going to do a little episodes of different kinds of sweeteners. And so, you know, as a category that we had mentioned before, the synthetic sweeteners that we're going to talk about that are approved in the United States at this point, worldwide, that would get a little more complicated because we have, uh, we don't all have the same list. We have more or less the same list, but not much. And so, you know, starting from the the least injurious, and then we're going to talk more detail later in terms of a separate breakout portion of a podcast, either this one or or later, you have stevia, monk fruit, and allulose. Those would be the ones that I would call natural. I'm not going to get into agave. I'm not going to get into various yucca syrup. I'm just not going to cover those. Those are clearly natural, but they're much more sucrose oriented in essence. They have sugar in it or fructose. And so I'm not going to cover sugar or fructose. I'm going to cover these other ones that most people use. Allulose obviously is so new and we'll get into that. So uh, there's not much information on it. Then I'm going to cover collectively what they call the sugar alcohols, which is xylitol, erythritol, mannitol, and sorbitol. You know, what do they have in common and how are they different? That's a, you know, you can tell pretty much by their last name or the last T-O-I-T-O-L that they're all developed in pretty much the same way. And they all have a very similar structure. We'll go into some of their difference, but I think if you can identify and if you can be familiar with sugar alcohols in general, you'll be a safer for it. You got to sugar alcohol. This is what it's going to do to me. This is what I know it's going to do to me. 
This is what I'm not quite sure it's going to do to me. And then the ones I put into a category over my dead body are aspartame and uh, what they call second generation aspartame. So aspartame's by Monsanto. Well, Monsanto's been bought by Bayer. So however you want to identify it, then uh, neotamine and then adventamine. You can you can sort of see the names are very similar to aspartame. And these are pretty much the same products with slight modifications that now have come under a new patent and they're good for the next 20 years. So that's the game that we're looking at. It's not like we're looking at a better, uh, nothing and aspartame's terrible. So there are equally bad. It's just coming out with a new one. And even if these were perfect, let's say they're perfect. Let's say aspartame had no complaints. It still would only be under patent for 20 years and it would go off patent. And a lot of people would be able to produce it in this, the original company, uh, Monsanto or, uh, GS Serral wouldn't be making any profit on it at that point. So they need to always come up with a reiteration of the same thing to get another patent going. That's, you have to know that because that's the reality in which we live. So it's not like, oh gosh, this is a newer one, so it's better. No, a newer one could be worse. It just means the last one came off patent and they need to make something up. So um, I hope that didn't sound too cynical. It's just the reality we live in. Then you have sucralose, which is otherwise known as Splenda. Saccharin is an older one. We'll get to that. Uh, apha, um, sulfamy K and apha sulfamy K or asa sulfamy potassium are the two names for the same thing. K is the chemical symbol for potassium. That's why they're called the same thing. We'll get to those. So I wanted to hit the big picture here because it's very easy to get lost in the weeds by just covering detail after detail to the point you don't remember what I was talking about initially. You know, the sweeteners first came out, and I'm not going to go into cyclamate, and, and saccharin's a little older. We'll, we'll get into that later. But it really wasn't until the mid-'80s, until aspartame came on the scene with these synthetic sweeteners. And prior to that, there was it was all sugar or sugar-like. You know, it was either fructose or sucrose, from a different plant, but people weren't thinking about that. So the idea of diabetes or or low sugar diet was such a minority view that there really wasn't a market for that. That's it was natural, <laughs> quote unquote. It was really natural. It was either left or right, fructose or sucrose, and all is fine. And maybe we had an intuition of not to have too much. After all, there were books written in the '60s called Sugar Blues, which was all about just sugar. So now that the artificial sweeteners have come onto the scene. We now have enough time under our belts, so to say, to say, you know, what is good? Nothing's good, by the way. Uh, What is terribly bad and what is not so bad and what has been kept off, kept out of the public view and we don't know that much about it yet. And that's, those are pretty much the stories. Aspartame, you can do your own Google search and I've talked about it a little bit last time. It's toxic. But I want to reframe that. It's too easy to say that. It's toxic. Don't have it. If, if that kind of common sense was motivation enough for you to stop doing something, then you are a unique individual. And what I mean is that people hear toxic and they really, in their own mind, they go, well, the comfort factor that it tastes good or it's in a food that tastes good versus that I know it could be bad for me, you know, they're going to go, well, it tastes good. And that's just the reality. I've seen that on a, so many thousands of patients, and it's a little bit like talking to a smoker and trying to logically convey that smoking's bad. 
They all know that now. So why is there still a market for cigarettes and so on and so forth? It's because they like it because of the comfort. You could say it's because of the addiction. That's an interesting way to go. And you could also say that about sweeteners. And that is, there are articles about that, by the way, about addiction and sweeteners, uh, addiction and sugar in particular, but sweeteners. But the point I want to get at is that the reason these sweeteners ever were developed in the first part was out of the idea that, oh my gosh, you know, we have a diabetes problem. If we could make something sweet that didn't have the calories, that didn't increase your glucose, your blood level glucose, your blood sugar, which then didn't increase your insulin, which then didn't cause these all the other cardiovascular problems and didn't cause a fatty liver or the fatty pancreas or the fatty heart and didn't do all the neurological damage of all the uh, brain issues we've had, Alzheimer's, MS, ALS. So if we could just get the sweetener without the glucose part, we'd be good. And that objective was agreed upon by pretty much everybody. So now that we've done that, uh, we really haven't ever reached that. So the problem came up to this. You had the sweetener and you didn't have the no effects. You had other effects that may not be increasing glucose. So now we're, we've introduced a whole other variable, which could be more dangerous and actually has proven to be more dangerous um, in many people's view. And I say in many people's view because there isn't a study to saying the danger of advanced prolonged chronic diabetes and elevated blood sugar versus uh, chronic um, synthetic sweetener consumption and the problems that that caused. It just isn't out there, hasn't been done, so I can't say that with that kind of conviction. But common sense is where I'm coming from about that comment. So artificial sweeteners now have this whole other column of side effects. And it's not like a side effect of I put my finger near a flame and my finger gets either very hot or maybe burnt. So if I pull back enough, I'll find that safe distance from the flame. It doesn't do that. You have to consume the artificial sweetener to get the side effect. And when you consume that sweetener, part of it, it gets stored in you permanently. Most of it, and they have studies on how much is excreted, right? They, they, they measure how much, this is through mice, by the way, and very few human studies, because you can't experiment with humans. So to expect that there's going to be some direct association with aspartame and cancer or sucralose and cancer or name your synthetic sweetener in something as dramatic as cancer or in a particular kind of cancer, never going to happen. But they'll simply ha have to make a an association. I doubt they'll ever get to causation. It takes too much data. So they do all their work on various kinds of rats and various kinds of mice. And that's where the research is done. So nobody can ever say with conviction that there is an association between some synthetic substance additive that you have in your foods and cancer. It's just not done. It's just too difficult to get there. They go association and very, very, very rarely do they ever get to causation. That's the way it goes. So that's why I come from my perspective of, I've seen this. I've, I haven't seen people die of cancer with these sweeteners, but I've seen the problems that it caused. And I've seen the resolution of these problems when this was taken out. So I'm pretty convinced. If I wasn't pretty convinced by seeing 
this would be merely an academic exercise and gathering information to make a podcast to sound informed. I have to do that anyway, because I'm doing it for me. I'm doing, why are all these things, you know, so potentially dangerous? And we weren't told that they were dangerous. How can that be? So in that kind of innocence or that kind of beginning place is where I am. And that's why I ask. I'm asking for me. I'm asking kind of for those patients because doctors don't have time to do that. They go to a conference and they hope that the presenters in the conference are straightforward, are truthful. But often everybody has an agenda and depending who they're uh, sponsored by, they may just sort of tell a certain portion of the truth or not completely. Hope that wasn't too bad for you all, but that's where I'm coming from, artificial sweeteners. So one of the things we can say now about uh, those who have used artificial sweeteners, where have they gone? Has it helped diabetes? First of all, it hasn't helped diabetes at all. Has it helped weight loss? It hasn't helped weight loss at all. And so they now actually do have human studies of those who have used artificial sweeteners, and they can name the artificial sweetener for X number of years, and this was their problem, and has that changed? Not at all. Okay, well, do we know... In humans, and this is now a general, and we're saying you can only get to association, maybe you can get to causation. So it's it's more than anecdotal, which is talking about one person at one one person's story at a time. It's a collection of people's stories and tying them together. So one of it is, is a study that came out in I think it was 1914. See if I got that right. It's called Artificial Sweeteners Induce Glucose Intolerance by Alternating by Altering Gut Microbiota. So why is that a big deal? So basically, we now know microbiome, your small intestine, your large intestine, uh, their bacteria, their viruses, and their fungal components that make for a healthy microbiome. Well, when you're taking these synthetic things, these additives in your food, but I can just talk, we're just talking about sweeteners now, is it kills some bacteria, viruses, and fungal, and, and basically changes the balance of your gut bacteria and your gut bacteria in your small intestine is slightly different than that in your large intestine. Small intestine is, is a big, big important part. Large intestine is too, but on the scale of thing, immunologically, it's your small intestine that we're talking about. It's 20 foot long versus uh, large intestine is a lot shorter. So why the, why is the microbiota change a big deal? Because we're now finding links that things like Alzheimer's come from a micro, your intestinal microbiota uh, flora, we can say, being changed, being abnormal, meaning it's very high in certain species and very low in others. So this extreme, another word is called dysbiosis, meaning it's 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 whacked out. <laughs> it's extreme with some and it's almost negligent in the other. We find a correlation with people who have been using, consuming these artificial sweeteners for a period of time show this correlation. One could ask, well, did they rule out the antibiotics these people have? That's a confounding factor, and that's a good question, and it's not that cut and dry. That's why you have to use large numbers of people, and pretty much everybody, these are, uh, this was from, what country was this from? Let's see what I get this from. Israel. It's primarily an Israeli study, which suits me fine. They have some of the best work, research in the world comes out of Israel, by the way. Also Europe, also Scandinavia also Japan to an extent, and the United States. It's just we have a lot greater incidence of conflict of interest in the U.S. and somewhat in Canada more than the rest of the world. And also Australia and New Zealand. Don't want to leave them all out. So given that, that 
negative, that's like a not, not a good thing to create this dysbiosis, to create this altered microbiota that predisposes you for other things, usually neurological conditions. Parkinson's, we also know, is association with uh, gut microbiota dysbiosis. Also, most of your serotonin, if you want to think of uh, your serotonin, your tryptamine, tryptophan, and so on, that pathway that makes you feel calm and nice, most of your serotonin, as in over 80% in your body, is made from your gut. So that's how important it is. That's why the gut's considered the second brain. Many people consider it the first brain. So your gut microbiota has been documented. It has changed, and there's a lot of data on that. That wasn't just an incidental one-off. That was a lot of heavy research to show that. That's the first. So we now have a negative, and we have lack of positives. The lack of positives, it didn't help with long-term blood sugar. Didn't help anybody lose weight. Didn't help decrease the um, increase of diabetes. Didn't help with fatty liver. Didn't help with fatty pancreas. So the reasons that they were created, the market that they were created for, really, it hasn't benefited that market. However, they're still selling very well. Why is that? Back to the cigarette analogy. People like it. They like the idea that they can have more of something and don't have to pay the consequences for it. So they think, I can have this, and some are calorie-free, quote-unquote, are calorie-free and sweet, and they love it. It goes in there, and they that's why Diet Coke sells. So it's been, uh, let's say aspartame has was approved in 1991 under Reagan with the whole Rumsfeld thing that I hope you've read about since last time. Um, I put some links to that, and certainly I explained some of that in the Facebook group. But it has now been out 20, pretty much 40 years. It's 40 years on from that, and now they're saying, gosh, the reasons we made aspartame, none of those worked. But people love Diet Coke. So you would think if we're, you know, what I'm saying is that people are not logical. They're not going to stop having their Diet Coke because you just prove to them that they're still going to be gaining weight, not because of the Diet Coke, but on their overall life, lifestyle, you've given them this idea they can have more of this stuff. And if they have more of this stuff, the theory is they'll have less calories overall in their day-to-day and they'll be losing weight. Well, guess what? None of that's worked out. And the reason none of that's worked out is because when you stimulate your sweetness receptors. You stimulate that, I love that juicy, sweet stuff, which we do have that. I mean, it's it's part of our evolution to have a little bit of a sweet tooth there. It was once a good thing to go out looking for the berries and so on and so forth. But now that you have as much as you want, it's not a good thing. Anyways, when, when uh, people have is that mentality of that they can have as much as they want without you know, uh, the side effects, you've taken away the negative they think they're in kind of a little bit of paradise. Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And logic really isn't the way to address this. However, being stuck with nothing but a podcast to talk from, I have to say that, you know, it is important to go through some of the specific negatives. We're not going to get into the studies, but we're going to have to generalize because you're not going to remember the studies. And I'll put some links up there so you can go further with it. I found luckily enough, a number of uh, good sites that can simplify it for you. But just know that the reason we're having these sweeteners, if anything, is negative. We stimulate these sweet receptors, and it's like having carbs in general. It makes us want to have more. So the whole stimulus of sweet 
regardless of what receptors, sweet in general, makes us want to have more. I like that so much. And with the idea of, oh, have some more, there's no calories in this. You have some more. And, but it also, in the course of the day, means you're going to have more of your cereal. Perish the thought. If you're listening to this, you're not having cereal. More of your meat, more of your eggs, whatever. I doubt you're, if you're seriously into keto, you're serious enough to consider challenging your beliefs on sweeteners, natural or artificial. And that's the point of this. But the sweet idea, it stimulates you. And when you go through the research on a per sweetener basis, natural or unnatural, you'll see that, oh, we're going to tell you how this affects the glycemic index. You know, it's as if that's the answer. Glycemic index. How quickly does it make your blood sugar rise, if at all, after you consume it? Well, that's no longer a valid answer. I mean, that's interesting. And that was the approach. But now it's what is the net? The net is it made you fatter, made you heavier, made you lazier. And potentially there's enough connections that it increased the, it's a strong component increasing the rates of all, I should have thrown uh, autism in there too, by the way. So we can say autism, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, ALS, and I'm missing a few for sure. The neurological diseases, certainly it's increased, help increase the rates of diabetes, and then all the secondary causes from there, the cardiovascular that I go on and on about. So that's the big deal, is that as much as they might have delivered, they being the artificial sweetener market, or sweeteners in general, but we'll say uh, the artificial sweeteners, that, hey, we can give sweet without the calories. Isn't that the dream? We've now had that dream for a while, and we realize that has not changed the reality. In essence, it's made the reality even worse. For a while back, we thought that, you know, high fructose corn syrup, when that became cheap, a cheaper alternative to the sugar, that that was the cause. That was probably the beginning of let's make lots of sweeteners out there and make everything sweet. And so that was part of a larger concept. I would not say it is completely responsible for this arc in high fructose corn syrup. So I hope you understand that point. So... Not only does it not provide the net benefits that it was sold on, you know, you can maintain your glucose, your blood sugar levels, especially if you're diabetic or pre-diabetic, but you won't be gaining calories. Well, that hasn't worked out. You may may not spike your glucose, but it will make you eat more on a day-to-day basis. and, And then there's this other variable that, is it bladder cancer? Is it liver cancer? Is it brain cancer? Is it, you know, name your cancers? Or is it lymphoma? Or is it leukemia? Is it uh, blood cancers? And there's plenty of evidence that many of these are associated with that. Those are harder to track down. And you, when you look into various research, you'll see now that the research, the faux research is out there too on PubMed or Google Scholar, that they put up a post that looks pretty educated, pretty academic pretty erudite, that says, well, we need more research. And we we just can't be saying these things. We need more research. We have 40 years out there. We have plenty of negative real-life experiences. So with that, that's me setting the stage. Let me just check my notes here. You know, the interesting thing about research is you have to start with a question, right? So you, you start, you postulate a question. And relative to artificial sweeteners, 
the question they postulated was, does my glucose go up? So that was like the gold standard they were going to measure against. They didn't ask about insulin. They didn't ask about other markers, my inflammatory markers. They didn't ask about other things. They just asked, they measured it against glucose. So that was the one thing that they didn't want to go up was your glucose readings after a half hour, after an hour, after an hour and a half. Actually, they only did an hour. And leave it at that. And that's it. And so that was a mistake. The question that they asked and, and answered was too simple. And the other thing on this that I want you to get is that, and it just dawned on me in our, in our Facebook group, I always get the question of fiber. You know, what's the deal with fiber? Are we, con- we, are we considering net carbs? And I hate net carbs. I think net carbs is a total contrivance. It's artificial. It's commercial. It's driven to sell stuff. Okay. So, but it was like, what's fiber? You know, why, where do we consider fiber? So the interesting thing about fiber, it, it is considered a carb in the my world, and the way my considering, and a lot of other people consider it a carb as well. And this whole, it's not metabolically inert as we used to think of it. But you have fiber, which are pretty complex, and they vary. A conversation happened to be based around a flaxseed meal for fiber. Uh, not to get into that, but to explain, I had to explain to this particular person about, you know, if you had, you know, he said, well, I think my fiber must, you know, change the delivery of sugar because I have an avocado on my X number of fibers there. And he was trying to make a comparison. And when I said, well, if you have sugar by itself, you'll get one spike. If you have sugar with some oil, you'll get a less of a spike. If you have sugar with some oil, and some protein, he even have a a lower spike. So the context in which that carb comes has a lot to do with how quickly it will spike your uh, blood sugar. And so fiber for a greater part of 30 years was what you need to give diabetics is fiber because it's going to slow down. It's inert. That was the belief that it was inert. It's going to slow down the release, the conversion, the digestion of carbs into blood glucose. So it was always a good thing. Then I realized, well, in order for us to know that, that on the fiber, they tested, you know, X amount of fiber on a given person, half hour, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, six hours. So they got to see the whole curve of whatever fiber they were looking at, you know, given a certain amount of simple sugar probably as well. But they measured that one they're looking for blood glucose, measured it over sequential times. And so they got a good swath of time and they felt pretty comfortable because they had enough people doing the same thing. So now back to the artificial sugars. They didn't do that with the artificial sugars. They simply measured it at one time. So if you took, and I've seen this on a number of videos, by the way, and these people who do this are, are pretty smart, but I realized it's also misleading they will line up all the artificial sugars and keep it an equivalent sweetener, right? So you have for a tablespoon of sugar, maybe it's 15 drops of aspartame. And so they line them all up. And each day they did a different sweetener. And then they measured with their glucometer and their ketometer to see, you know, before and after. So it was pretty interesting. And that is absolutely a way to do it. But they needed to continue, not just after a half hour, but after an hour after 90 minutes, after two hours, then three hours, and four hours, because what didn't show up in the first 30 minutes may very much show up in an hour, or an hour and a half, or 
create a longer rise, or even it might even increase your morning glucose of the next day. So all these factors are very important. So just to look at that one window in time of 30 minutes after that was on these YouTubes that I've seen, two couples uh, did the same thing and they were both uh, informative. But the misleading part was, the, or the assumption was, they were all equal and if it didn't show up now, if, if it didn't affect your glucose now, it wasn't going to affect it later. That's a wrong and dangerously wrong assumption. So apart from not talking about the toxic side effects of uh, artificial sweeteners, it's just an incomplete way to collect data. You need to do it over time. So the artificial, back when they did this research, now I'm thinking aspartame in the 80s, and then you had these others, we'll get into a little more later. They just didn't do that. So you had a false assumption that certain ones of these did not increase your blood sugar. So I don't know if it was done on purpose, but the data was incomplete. So for us then to go back and say they didn't increase your glucose, well, they didn't increase your glucose in that first and only test. They didn't test throughout the day of a number of people and into the next day. Interesting that, eh? Okay. What else do I have here? I have pretty much, I said, uh, general effects we're seeing now documented. That's pretty much what I explained. We need to ask the questions. We need to ask better questions to get better data. Uh, toxic side effects are delayed. In essence, that's what I just explained, is that you know, you're not going to get a toxic side effect in an hour. So when I use the word toxic, then talk about an overused word, but it is a general and an appropriate category, uh, I believe, for the synthetic artificial sweeteners. So if you're thinking the word toxic is like cyanide, you take a drop of it and you're dead in a second. Well, that's pretty toxic. Everything's toxic. It's just about the dose. So obviously artificial sweeteners don't have the same dose as cyanide. Okay. So, but it's not to say that they are not toxic. And that's what we're seeing over time. As I say, it's been over 40 years now, and we've seen a number of associations of various cancers, certainly a lot of GI and other ailments and so on. And I saw in the practice mostly rashes and headaches and ringing in the ears and lack of fatigue and, you know, this sort of thing that I strongly felt were associated with this, but I didn't see any cancer. It was too new in a way. But those are the kind of things you can only find out about over time. And so testing is one moment in time a population has to live with this thing. So that's why you have, all right now, worldwide, Aspartame is coming into another review. Uh, certainly the, the Israelis and uh, Scandinavian research is saying it's toxic stuff. And uh, European Union is now being asked to review these things again. So after 40 years, the, the history of aspartame, for this example, is it was created and then approved and then disapproved and then approved again due to politics. And so now it's been had a 40-year run uh, for the most part. And we're now seeing some of these other effects. And so now these other effects saying, you know, it's been a problem. And now the testing certainly has become more sophisticated with mice and rats and genetic interfacing with all this. So it takes time. So um, I'm trying to sow a little seed of doubt. I know uh, most of us are like that cigarette smoker who may or may not have cancer, who's still unwilling to give up smoking because 
of the comfort that thing brings us. We all have that aspect. It's a little bit of what they call a cognizant dissidence. You know, we know better, but we don't want to make the change in our own life. And there's a number of areas we can all talk about this like this. But so I'm just here to say, this is real. And there's some real problems here. And I believe we have some better choices. So we'll get to some of those better choices. That's it for now. And so now I'm going to go back and go through some of these synthetic sweeteners one at a time, a little bit. And then we'll get into our sugar alcohols. And then we'll get into our natural sugars and what we know or don't know about those. Okay. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.